0: Insight into Instruction. Combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students.
1: Hey, welcome to Triple I, Insight into Instruction. My name is Jamie.
0: I'm Annabelle.
1: And I'm Fabulous. But you can call me Thomas.
0: This week, we covered Chapter 5, Assessment as Learning, from the Gottlieb text. As we were provided no specific prompt, we will be taking sections from the chapter, breaking them down, making connections, and discoursing.
1: So I chose something from the first section of the chapter on page 139. Um, this page, Gottlieb, brings up a research-based model created by Mary Jane O'Connell and Kara Vandas, I'm not sure the pronunciation of the names, and it was basically designed to foster learner-centered practices and collaborative learning to build trust between teachers and students. And so the model's acrostic namesake, trust reads, talent, discovering every student's assets for learning, rapport and responsiveness, forging relationships based on trust and mutual respect, the us factor believing that everyone can learn and contribute to the learning process structures setting up mechanisms that enable students to become owners of their learning and time offering opportunities to nurture the relationship between teachers and students so this section resonated with me just because it seems like a really basic level of support Yet, as we have seen in a lot of our practicum experiences, it's really often that it's not implemented. Mm -hmm. So especially with those EL students, this could really be due to ignorance or just not having received any of those ELL endorsements or having taken personal development courses. And even if they have taken the, the PD courses, we're spending around two years, us in the program, immersed in all of this. CLR or culturally responsive pedagogy versus just having like a few classes that are just a couple hours. And that's all the knowledge that they're receiving. And we're also receiving specific
2: classes each semester Mm -hmm. to specifically help and grow EL students.
1: Right. And then this really ties to that formative assessment, just because we are continually saying throughout the time here at WSUV and within the podcast, teaching to the individual. So and and when you're teaching to the individual, you're scaffolding, you're differentiating, but it's specific to each individual person. Mm -hmm. So it's not here's a broad scaffold for all EL students, because each EL student is going to have a completely potentially different level and not just a level overall, but a level within just speaking oral literacy Mm -hmm. or reading or writing or whatever it may be.
0: Definitely. And that's where I think the structures section of trust that you were talking about is also so huge. It's setting up those mechanisms that enable students to become owners of their own learning, right? So that has to be scaffolded, like you mentioned, but also just having that be a repeated, integrated part of your classroom. I feel like that's not something that you can just throw in every once in a while because you learned about it one time at that conference. Something that has to be woven into everything else or else that structure is not there for students to feel safe or know how to go about this learning like never mind, the learning, learning model and as,
2: yeah. and as david taught taught us that we should also scaffold for each individual level mm-hmm. because like even if i was a middle school teacher which all uh, we know teachers don't have enough time to do any of mm-hmm. the stuff we're asking um as well as just knowing and being able to have to go like, like the sheer number of students that teachers have they give us a middle school level you're going to have to scaffold and just have level one, two, three, four, and five accessible because you're going to have close to 150 students come into your classroom per day. Mm-hmm. Yes, getting to know each individual one is extremely important, but also you may not be able to individualize for that one student. But you know if they're level five in discourse or mm-hmm. in speaking, you have those resources and sentence frames and all those graphic organizers right. ready for them. And it's like you said, it's that you, it's not to be just thrown here and there, sprinkled in. It needs to be for each individual lesson because those students are there every single day. Right, intentional planning. It needs to be intentional every single time. Right. Because that's how they're going to grow and that's how they're going to learn. And with using trust, which I love, by the way, like you can actually take the time to be able to do all this stuff, but also use it in a way that's meaningful and also beneficial for you and the student and not taking time, but also making that time valuable.
1: Yeah. So to answer the questions from the reflection, uh, the first one is, what are some effective strategies for building trust in your students? So I have, I've got a a whole lot in my brain. (laughs) So first of all, reading the student files and the student surveys and knowing their language levels coming in for the different subjects. True. Just because they give you that when they come into the school and so if you have that read at least the first day when they walk into your classroom you have some background knowledge and if you don't have that you need to make sure you get it
2: from an administration because yeah. i know my one of my practicum teachers was like oh but they never handed it to me and i was like
1: let's okay, hound them like, grab it
2: i will hand, okay. i would hound them i want that information it's so vital to their learning mm-hmm. so vital
1: um, but then I, I mentioned things like the getting to know you activities, so like the culture bag, the I am poem or Who I am poem, I am um, I am from poem and Who I am poem because we I think mm-hmm. we did one of those yeah. as well. Yeah. The dear teacher letters that we did in our oh, statistics class, yeah. dear happy but not happy, and all of these can can be modified to fit to individual language levels. So. Then also the community events to include the family, phone calls, check-ins, whether that be like a monthly thing where it isn't behavior-based, home visit post-COVID, depending on the district. And then in general, having high expectations for all of your students in an equitable way ensures that productive struggle and helps those individuals stay in that zone of proximal development so that they are able to progress. So that's, those were some of the things that I mentioned. And then just by running that classroom that encourages the student agency and selecting activities that really allow students to learn for themselves Mm -hmm. rather than for the teacher. I think that those are some really effective strategies just to build that trust. And then the second question was, what are the challenges and how might you overcome them when you are not familiar with the students' languages and culture? So the things that I really like immediately thought of were those misconceptions when it comes to culture. So the no eye contact, the no speaking, mm-hmm. any classroom norms from different cultures that aren't mirrored here. So things like not understanding idioms or where red ink, I know, it, I think it was Japan. China. You're not supposed to. Chi- is it ch- China? I was reading one for Japan as well. Um, but China. Can you explain? Because you did that whole thing on China. I know China China with red represents luck, but you're only supposed to use it during the new year. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then there was another one where red ink was like, was attached to death and things like that. So again, just knowing things like that, depending on the cultures that are within your classroom was huge, but Mm -hmm. then hugs and shaking hands Mm -hmm. and physical contact and any of those things that could be potentially disrespectful, shaking with the right hand versus the left hand. And then also language. So in general, language can be a huge barrier. So things like sheltered instruction, the repetition, the things that we learned from David as far as vocabulary, just to help the students understand what you're talking about in the first place. Because if they don't understand directions, I don't know how they're supposed to do anything else. You have to have that base level of, of understanding to start out. Well, that makes me
2: think back to what we, the project we did with Giza, where we chose a country. Like mm-hmm. I chose china with uh, miss allison and we both we did a we, we did just basically a google search mm-hmm. and learn just what we could about their culture like like what are the do's and their don'ts when they're in school what are the do's and their don'ts in their home like what is that what does the family structure look like just a basic google understanding or google search to find out baseline level information to basic to help bridge because like i would never have thought that with some of the stuff we did learn. And I will be using that, those reference sheets all through the, my teaching years, but knowing what's acceptable, and what's not, because you don't want to call on a student that it culturally doesn't want to be called on because if they get called on, it's like a symbol that like they're not paying attention, they're not mm-hmm. doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, no, right. and then they get freaked out because they're so used to just the teacher speaking and they're quiet and they sit there and they, they learn and it takes time for them to understand how we handle our culture and the way that they have theirs and have like that melt that melting pot of culture that eventually a classroom will become. Mm-hmm. But when you have a new student, you have to have you have to have that understanding so you know what barriers you're gonna be overcoming or melding with that in a way.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, especially when that culture is in the classroom, but they're also having the other culture that is continuing at home. Mm-hmm. So even though you're allowed to speak out without either raising your hand or with raising your hand, bringing attention to yourself versus at home, you're still in that, potentially that classroom mentality where quiet listening speak when you're spoken to.
2: It's that
1: mindset. Yeah, it's hard. So anyway, but yeah, I think that, I guess to sort of close everything up, I think that having an intentional plan Mm -hmm. um, in place to meet each section of the trust model we're able to be more responsive to the class overall, but specifically to the EL students, the multilingual students, along with any of those students who are underserved. And it's really prevalent when it comes to assessment. And, and unfortunately, I'm going to bring in standardized testing here, not being equitable towards multilingual learners because of cultural differences. So word problems, talking about things that aren't relevant or don't make sense to students from the cultures other than the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then that brings in the importance of teaching again those idioms or the turn of phrase, but these things honestly shouldn't even be in standardized tests. No. And then along with language and translation, there are a lot of things that make sense in rhyme. So I think about music where it's rhyming in English, but when you transfer it over to another language, there's absolutely no rhyme mm-hmm. because the words are completely different. So they're not there's no accuracy there. Off of that formative assessment within the classroom can be a lot more easily scaffolded and differentiated than a standardized test because when you're specifically learning your own students and their strengths and things that they need to work on throughout the year as well as already knowing their background and their culture you're able to tap into those funds of knowledge to utilize them whether it be on tests or just for the entire classroom And then you're involving them in that decision making and you're providing activities and assignments that incite that critical thinking that relates to them. And that helps them build that knowledge and understand what would be on those future summative assessments. Mm -hmm. But then it also allows them the sense of agency and you're able to, again, step back from that teacher, traditional lecture, paper, repeat to do a more student-led classroom. So just by having the trust method before creating your tests or your exit tickets or providing those supports like the sentence starters or the graphic organizers, things like that. As a teacher, you're just able to hone in on the individual needs of the students because of the utilization of that trust model. (music)
0: So the area that really popped out to me that we're going to be exploring a little bit more here in a moment was the benefits of assessment as learning, which was part of this chapter as a whole, but also it really honed in on why we shouldn't necessarily see assessment as a bad thing. It does provide us with the data and if framed in the right way, can actually help build student self-efficacy, which was surprising to me because in general, I felt like tests or assessments were always very teacher-centric growing up. But this did a great job of highlighting how you can turn them into a method of learning and a way for students to kind of reclaim their learning in the classroom. So on page 140 they actually break it down into four huge ways that having assessment reframed as learning really helps students. And the first one is how it helps develop habits of mind and inquiry And this made me think about project-based assessments and also just leaving units based off of questioning and how it can help us build critical thinkers and problem solvers because it's them facing a project and working their way through it and showing their knowledge that way through the whole process and then having a product at the end versus a multiple choice test where you don't see a long-term goal and there's not that long-term movement throughout it. So if we frame it in that inquiry-based, the students have buy-in from the beginning and work their way through in a similar fashion. We've talked about this a lot in my math class recently, but I've also seen it be executed very well at the high school level for science. A lot of times we would do inquiry-based units and it like it falls easily into the science category because of how the scientific method works. But really you can have that leading question in a lot of units and in a lot of different areas of study and bring your students through the journey in that way and assess it on a more of a critical thinking lens instead of a answer giving lens, essentially. The next section that they really talked about with um, self-assessments and assessment as learning was the increasing is how it helps increase learner autonomy. And so what this talks about is Essentially, how a huge part that we talk about and go into even further later in the chapter is self assessment for students, and then it's no longer the teacher grading them, or at least to the same extent. They can even have it where they get to build the rubric themselves at the start of the unit. And I actually got to witness this at my work not too long ago. They have started a research unit on history and westward expansion. And the students are having to do a project on anything that they found interesting. They're making their own projects and get to present it in any way they find. And this is at like the fourth grade level. And so it was really interesting to see it executed at that age. But they got to help build the rubric and they included things like quality work and grammar and precision and sources like on their own. Like those were things they decided to add to the rubric without the teacher prompting, which made me think she's probably been doing this co-creation rubric outline concept since the start of the school year and they've kind of looked at what is like what is necessary well that's really impressive yeah
1: they are she has to have had a discussion with them Mm -hmm. about what those mean and the importance of them otherwise they wouldn't be putting that on there so Mm -hmm. i I think that's really impressive yeah it
0: was really cool
2: or especially where she's emphasized we are now correcting grammar and like how to do these certain things so they've picked up oh i need to be doing this so it should be something that should be looked at right that makes sense
1: and the importance factor yeah which one what is what do you think is the most important within this assignment
0: yeah and grammar was seen within the realm of precision like they talked about being specific and the grammar needing to be specific and like a whole little section about that and kind of the detail-oriented look at it But the other parts was, it doesn't answer my question. Is there some sort of visual? Like right now, some of them are making totem poles. Some of them are building wagons. Some of them are baking things at home and bringing them in. They can't eat them because of different rules of that district, but bringing in different baked goods, different like presentations on clothing. And it's been really interesting to see how, although they are so different, you can assess them pretty similarly based off of the rubric that they got to make themselves. It's a very self-directed activity that they are just loving. And that kind of tied into the next benefit that they talk about, which is advancing intrinsic motivation. And we talked about this a lot in Gisela's class in the fall and about how much more successful students are when they have that personal buy-in and they are intrinsically motivated instead of extrinsically motivated. So if they are very mindful of their learning and mindful of their growth and seeing their assessment as a product of that learning, it's a lot easier for them to want to excel and want to do great and work with their strengths versus feeling in that deficit mindset that can come along with traditional standardized testing. And we've even talked about in Gisela's class how much more quickly students who were intrinsically motivated learned language Mm -hmm. compared to those who end up as long-term MLs and how something that happens along the way with becoming long-term is this sometimes this loss of intrinsic motivation and how important that is to bring both academically and from a ling- like linguistic acquisition sense.
2: And when they're pick, when they're creating this rubric, they are actually choosing what they want to learn, mm-hmm. and then they're cho- not, well not what they want to learn, but what they want to actually show their learning and how they're going to show that learning in a way that is beneficial for them as well as for the teacher to be like, you get it, I, exactly. I, you get this, you get this, you get this, and let me see the rubric that you created so I can then help you. Where where are you at? And how can I help you move to that next step? Even though it's still an assessment, it's still a way for a teacher to look at and say, okay, this is where you are. It's wonderful. Now what's that next step? How can we make this even more? And like a lot of that discourse of other students have been like,
0: mm-hmm. oh,
2: you're doing this hit on pole. I'm doing this. How can we like combine our knowledge? How How can we, how can my knowledge help you and your knowledge help me?
0: Definitely. And two of my major issues when I first, not issues, but ma- major like areas where I had questions for this teacher when she presented this assignment to me, one, one was time. Because if students are just, once they have the rubric built, if they're looking at it and see those as their check boxes and they just go through and reach their target, what are they going to do at the end of it if other students are super invested or are taking something that takes longer time? But how she's letting them do it is the, for these chunks of time, once once you're done with one project, we just move along to answering another research question like that they form and they're just doing another project and they just keep going with it. And the idea oh, is okay. to just like be engaged with the material that entire time. It's yeah, like
1: a continuation of learning mm-hmm. and and do they are they related? So like from one to the next when she asks another question, are they is it? interconnected or is it just completely separate
0: it's all around like a lot of them are honing in on the Oregon Trail but it's all around westward expansion in general she gave them a few a few prompts like a few ideas but a lot of it is based off of what they decide so one kid had started off with the totem pole idea and then realized that too many kids were doing it so they kind of wrapped that up and did it but not super in depth and now this student is looking a lot more into masks and specifically within the Pacific Northwest how those looked at that time period. Mm -hmm. My one other major concern when I first was thinking about this project or how I would execute this in my own future classroom was from a social economic status Mm -hmm. of if some kids are coming in with all of these supplies and you're providing certain supplies, what is that going to look like as far as some students being able to produce just these brilliant projects while other students have limited resources and limited support at home? But what's been really interesting is because there's this openness, kids, kids are more aware than we think of what resources yeah. they do or not do or do not have and what strengths they do or do not have. And so it's been really interesting to see how they hone in on their interest and then find a way to apply it with what they, what, what, what resources good at. they have.
2: And then they're using that rubric mm-hmm. to create a, because like, if they have that rubric, they're able to decide, okay, well, I only can do this. Mm-hmm. But this is going to be really great. And so I'm going to do this, but this is the only resources I have for it. And the one thing that I love now that we live in an age of technology, mm-hmm. they could take everything virtually. Yes, we do. Which Our
0: students are doing that.
2: Which that opens up a wonderful, you could make a 3D model or all types of things on mm-hmm. the computer, which then it's already provided by the district.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: it's not that, that, it kind of helps with that social economic status. Yeah. It, cool. Even though those, go
1: on. Oh, no. Um, I was just going to kind of piggyback off of you talking about not only the rubric and the resources, but that intrinsic want to learn is they're creating things mm-hmm. that are prob- potentially harder on themselves than what the teacher would do.
0: Oh, 100%. Um, oh, yeah. Look at what we're doing right now. Something crazy. Look at what we're doing right now.
1: We're creating a podcast. I mean, you right. said a 3D model, like, yeah. <laughs> but I could imagine like a fourth grader being like, well, I'm going to create a 3D model because, you know, I'm given the opportunity mm-hmm. to do so. And their, their minds can go so much further when you open up a rubric, but also they're creating the rubric. So mm-hmm. in their mind, they're probably leaving these openings to be able to be so much more creative than something that we might make that might stifle that creativity but just like when we started this program I thought we'd be writing papers the whole entire
2: time mm-hmm. and doing stuff like that and that's what I thought teaching looked like was papers that mm-hmm. was it was filling in the bubbles cuz what I did mm-hmm. like just standardized tests filling in the bubbles spelling tests and just things that are just like standardized tests and now that I've taken these courses and I saw just the reason why we're doing this cuz Jessica Masterson's rubric was so open-ended mm-hmm. for multimodal approach that we are able to make it into a podcast. And this is harder than the 500 pages, that 500 words that we could have just written and turned in. Is it more beneficial? Are we getting so much more of it? Heck yes.
0: A thousand percent. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> but
2: it's hard, it is harder, but we're getting so much more. And if we apply that to our younger students,
0: mm-hmm.
2: they can score even more.
0: Yeah, and we do have a few students who are making pamphlets or making something that's a little bit more traditional, but they super enjoy it and they're super detail-oriented. I have one student who is usually pretty apathetic towards some assignments, but on this one... They're they're using Google Sites to make their own website all about Western expansion, and they're like nice. Not, they Look love at that. it. Wow. So traditional
1: and boring. That's no, so no, that's amazing. amazing. That's amazing. Awesome. Oh my gosh!
0: Another the kid, and I was checking in with this student because, like, they seemed a little bit detached or like they were a little distracted. So I checked in with them on what they were doing, and they were making hardtack. That was what they were going to do. Is they had researched recipes, and were going to make hardtack at home, mm-hmm. right? And so I was talking with them, and I'm like, oh, yeah, can you show me your sources? Like, show me how this is research-based and what you're going to do to present this to them, because we, we had established that the other students can't eat the food that you bring in, right? And so they showed me this huge document with all the different researches, how they had looked on numerous different cooking sites and different things to find one that had all the ingredients that they had access to at home. And when I was asking them to show all this stuff to me, the kid was also like, yeah, well, I live... I lived in a trailer park and I don't have access to this thing or this thing that so-and-so is doing, but the pioneers had to make something out of nothing. And I have all of these things at home. <laughs> and so he no, no. made, he made it. And then I come in the following week and there was the hard tack and the Ziploc baggie to show me. And turns out they'd gotten their dad to like, run over the hard tack and the hard tack didn't break. Oh like it was that hard. Yeah. And so it was a really really immersive, really cool way to see how families were getting involved outside of it at every level. It was very much a low floor, high ceilings activity. And that's exactly what this reminded me of in the book. So I super resonated with this section.
2: Your teacher's killing it. Your teacher's killing it. Right. So as everyone's talked about different parts of this chapter, Jamie started with the trust model and how just really getting to know your students so you can actually assess them. And then how Annabelle talked about how we're actually assessing them, making it very student led, making it very open-ended, multimodal for the student autonomy and the student self-efficacy. And what I wanted to really touch on and what really resonated with me is how are we evaluating these assessments? And so I'm going to speak about the reflection part. So I'm going to go ahead and say these questions real quick, and then I will talk about it. The first question is, what's assessment as a learning practice was most valuable to me as a teacher or teacher leader? And which practices do I believe are most adventurous for my students? As a grade level or department team, how might I think about creating a survey to glean information on students' personal interests Mm -hmm. and learning styles? So on page 142 in our book, it talks about ways that we as teachers can make learning intrinsic, like you were talking about, Annabelle. And the ways you do that is devise ways of expanding students' learning. So as you were talking about how they are creating these projects, and then they are, like, what are they doing afterwards, like Jamie asked. They have other questions, so it's devising ways to expanding their students' learning. They finish their project, like, hey, now what do I do? The teachers, it was like, okay, well, let's think about this. Here's this question to ponder. Here's this thought to ponder. Here's this scenario to ponder. And then taking all of their learning, all of their projects, and then finding ways to devise a way to then have students lead their conferences for their parents. Mm -hmm. So, and a way to do that, let me back up a little bit. So planning their conferences, fostering students' accountability for learning and sharing learning with others, are primary goals of having students take a lead in preparing and leading conferences, either with teachers or family members. So having them say, okay, this is what I've learned. This is my summative. So I'm creating this huge project. And now I've created all of these projects and I want to show it to someone, whether they have the ability to have family members come or have the teachers come. But this process its not easy as I'm going to create all this stuff and I'm going to then go and give it to my parents or I'm going to give it to the teacher. There has to be a lot of intentional planning because the time for prepping is invaluable. This comes in with the students role playing a conference. This is where students are coming together and having that discourse with each other about this is what I'm going to show my family. What are you going to show your family? And having that discourse of like, oh, well, that's really wonderful, but didn't you do this? That maybe this might be a little bit different because you only have such like what thirty minutes to forty five minutes for it's it's really short. It's really a snippet of time, and it's all student led. So the teachers are giving their thoughts. But they're really taking that backseat and be like, okay, yeah, you did learn that. And remember, you did learn this too, like helping mm-hmm. moderate, but it's all student led. They're creating, their, like create a slideshow or create a book or to reel it into my last one is creating a portfolio of their learning. So they are creating a portfolio of their yearly learning, or even there's some teachers do it semesterly, some people do it quarterly, some do it once a year. It depends on what is, what your district is really, what their guidelines are per se. I would do it quarterly because what you learn at the beginning of the year, trying to learn it present at the end of the year can be hard. But creating these portfolios really helps a way of like pictures of their products, explanations of their products, stuff that they're doing intentionally through the year to say, This is my portfolio. This is what I've learned in second grade this year. I learned about the plants growing. I learned that if I were to add more fertilizer, what happens to the plant if I X, Y, and Z? I'm trying to create a portfolio off my head. It's not going to work really well. But (laughs) so it often works. It says that portfolios contain representation of students' original work products, often with a letter and a reflection of their learning and their immediate goals So it has that rubric that you were talking about. It has the product itself. It has what their intentions were and what they gleaned from it afterwards, which is what we as teachers are assessing on. So we, the work is kind of done for us in a way that is extremely beneficial for us. In the mm-hmm. students. And they're probably, again, being harder on themselves so than we would, would be on them. Like, oh, right. you did do that. And just for, and like, we've done a lot of prep work for that, like, mm-hmm. not necessarily easy checking off, but we know as teachers going through all of this, where they are, where they're going, because we've done a lot of formative of assessments and summative assessments, but it's a way for them to say, I did that. This is what I did. And I'm proud of what I did. Mm-hmm. And I I thought about all this myself. I did all the research myself. I created this stuff myself. I may have had scaffolded learning and scaffolded sentence frames and graphic organizers, but this is what I did. And I'm proud of it. And what way? What amazing way is that for us to present that to the families?
1: And I love that you said quarterly, because imagine building yourself up throughout the year rather than just, I don't know, just not getting any. Feedback through an entire mm-hmm. year of school and not being able to be proud of yourself or show the teacher what you're proud of until the end of the year with this huge summative thing that is probably going to create more stress than it is happiness. Yeah. Plus, you're reflecting on your learning and saying, How can I move forward from this? How can I learn more? How can I push myself further?
2: And if you were to do, if you do it quarterly, you could say, okay, these are my goals for the next year. Right. These are my goals. And the teacher who is currently there can be can keep those students account help keep those kids or students accountable for their goals because if you create goals at the end of the year, you have no idea if the next teacher is going to help them keep keep accountable or what their intentions are, portfolios are what whatever you may have it. Mm-hmm may happen
1: and like how when children make up their own rules for the classroom you can say you created this rule so you should be following this rule this is what you did and it's their goals that they created so you say this is what you wanted to do it wasn't me saying you have to do this this is what you wanted to do and this is how you thought that you could move forward so that's again more intrinsic than it Mm is hey i'm giving you these things that you have to do Mm -hmm. And for and what I love so much about this being
2: for ELLs, is that students have multiple ways of trying to get all this information on there. They are the ones taking mm-hmm. the photos. They are the ones either typing or recording, depending on where you are. They may be using their first language, mm-hmm. and you may not know a lot of what they're saying, but their families will, mm-hmm. or and, and, and then tech. or the interpreter that you have at those conferences will. And so you can that you still have a way of assessing, but it's still it's been put all in their pocket or all in their field mm-hmm. for them to create whatever they feel like creating. And I think that's just wonderful.
1: Well, and you like, I threw out ed tech in there, mm-hmm. but the fact is, is they're, they're becoming a digital citizen by doing this. So there's some more common core state standards yeah. that you're meeting just by them being able to do something like record a video or whatever it may be.
2: Yeah, it's just I can think of a bazillion ways you can create it. You can create a portfolio. You can do it online. You can do it, even the three D like the three D fold of, um, oh, the trifold. Yeah, the trifold. That's the I'm looking for. A poster board. You do yeah. poster board. You can even do if you were really. If you wanted to do a storytelling in a way and just like show pictures or like mm-hmm. create an art project if you're a comic book or a comic book and mm-hmm. you there's plenty of ways yeah. that it can be integrated for to meet what the child wants or the if student
1: wants. We go into what we're learning right now, like the fine arts music. Yeah. Right. Ding. Like, can you imagine them like, dra- like dramatizing?
2: Oh my goodness. Like, or interpretive, in dance. Yeah. interpretive dance.
1: Interpretive <laughs> dance. Interpretive dance.
2: Here's this picture I'm doing interpretive dance for. Right. I don't know,
0: but Definitely.
2: it could be, it could be.
0: And I, what I love about what you mentioned, Thomas, is all of this is so immersive, but it can all be done within the classroom. Because as we know, there's so many administrative hoops to jump through as far as making anything school-wide. And we hear about project-based schools. I know out in Camas, they have a few going. And that mindset and that thought is all stuff that you can implement at a smaller level within your own classroom. It's mm-hmm. it's a matter of mindset. And I think it would be really amazing. Because when you think back on your like my own schooling experiences, the ones that like stuck with me were definitely those projects. Hmm. Definitely the things where you were personally invested and it was your learning.
2: but who doesn't have... If you do have personally mine got burned down. But who doesn't have art if, if there was a portfolio given to a parent, mm-hmm. who doesn't have that? You get to reflect back on that for years to come. So whether or not the school like it's school wide, mm-hmm. that end of the year portfolio is going home. My and mom. it gets to be with the family and or and the student. Like this is what I did in second grade and I rocked it.
0: My mom still has her English portfolio from her junior year of high school and it was right around the same time that she met my dad so there are entries of her talking about meeting my dad in there that we still have so cool. it's so cool i it's have such the a time i
2: have the portfolio from when i was a senior in high school mm-hmm. and that you have to do the senior portfolio for the senior project and that this was oh, 12 years ago 13 years ago but um we had to create a pro- and i still have it i still have all that work and i reflect back on to like this is why i went into this is why i was a teacher and this is why I love kids. I'm like, it kind, it all makes sense. And it was just wonderful. So it, applying that and all of this into just teaching, it just, it feels like it could be so
1: seamless. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of um, Irina.
0: Mm-hmm. And when she
1: shared all of her EL, like, her writing from the beginning when she first came into the program and yes. then when she exited the mm-hmm. program and the difference between the the work product and how proud she was even, how, I don't know how old she was and how long ago it was, but I mean, years mm-hmm. afterwards, she kept that and was like, look at this, look what I did. And I was in this program. And it was something that was just so tangible for me to see an EL student who had started at Whatever level she was at and had exited out of the program and how proud she was of that still to this day. I was like, ah, oh, snaps. <laughs> and one thing that I would like to stress
2: about this, it could work for any age. As young as toddlers, yes, with more scaffolding, of course, and you're taking pictures and you're putting it in there and doing all this stuff. All the way up to where we are now, because we're creating, we have to create portfolios for um, our teaching. It can go to any, any student. And it's so, it's so applicable across all the ages. Mm-hmm. And I can see kindergarteners doing this. I could see middle schoolers doing this. As long as we start from where Jamie was talking about, where it comes to trust, and then moving to where it's self-directed they have this thought about what they want to learn but they're creating all they're they're researching they're gaining all the knowledge of course with this teacher's help they're going to give like it's a lot of work teachers are gonna have to give resources and stuff and give them right get along the right track and then taking it to a portfolio where then they present it in a student-led conference it's just my boy anyone can do it i think mm-hmm. all the students can do it even even a kindergarten i learned about this and i'm I'm flipping through the book and just talking about what I learned and how I learned it. It's just
1: wonderful. It's what I was thinking. I I literally, you said it. And then I was like, that's what I was trying to remember what I was going to say is when Annabelle and I were talking earlier, we were talking about how so many things are done in preschool that are like so far ahead of what people are doing in elementary school. I feel like that was that basis of having the portfolio showing each individual milestone doesn't seem like you would be doing that for a toddler, but guess what? They're learning fine motor skills. They're learning gross motor skills. The fact that you can hop up and down on this little bouncy hippo is a huge oh, milestone a huge and it's a gross motor skill. Yeah. And I was like, these are the things that we were doing in in preschool and beforehand, early childhood education that should be implemented in elementary education, and we don't think about that, but it's it's prevalent for literally infants and I, to adults. And I really think that has to come down with the standards
2: mm-hmm. because in preschool, it's all in, like if you were to do, uh, let's say, teaching strategies gold. Mm -hmm. They have a list of standards all the way from birth, all the way to third grade. Mm -hmm. And it's a continuum of learning. And then you know where they're going to go or where they start and where they're supposed to be, where their grade band is, and it's continuum. And what's really great about it, it's in one place and it has examples and it all builds off of each other. Mm -hmm. Each section, Mm -hmm. it goes from math fine motor Gross motor, cognitive, social, emotional, and takes each one of those. There's like 31 different standards in there, um, and they're all broken down. their subcategories too, and they're just wonderful. And you create a portfolio based on that. If our standards were more, each standard was more aligned with each other, mm-hmm. and they were actually built as a full uniform, I feel like that would be such a great way to bend actually implement portfolios because we have all these standards we're supposed to teach, but there's so many that we have to pick and choose which ones because there's only 180 days, 181 days of teaching, mm-hmm. days of the year that we have to do. And to be able to cram all the standards into it's kind of hard. So if we could cut off some of the ones that are not as, or impl- integrate or move them around or mm-hmm. figure out a way for them all to be integrated would be
0: lovely. Definitely. And I think the standards are huge, and the other thing I was thinking about, just from a mindset perspective, especially once you hit middle school, is I feel like some people start to see school as an area to be a student instead of an area to be human. If that makes sense. Versus in it's preschool,
2: it's a place it's to very learn and be their educated.
0: Children and they're learning, but you're aware of who they are as people. Versus the further on in schooling. I got, until, like, until this program, I'm talking about middle school, high school, it became much more prevalent, like, like, you are a number, or you are a production, you are, you are your brain, not your whole self.
1: You're a statistic.
0: Yeah. You're,
2: that kind of takes me back to where we had, like, their, a teacher has a hundred and some odd mm-hmm. students, and to be able to, like, individualize for each one takes time, which they don't got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Which takes energy, which they don't really have. Right. And, like... Well, they have the energy, and but the time is the biggest thing. They just There are mm-hmm. too many students per teacher to be able to effectively differentiate and also do wonderful things like this.
0: So maybe if we turned away from as much summative assessment or traditional assessment and more towards our formative assessments in our portfolios as a form mm-hmm. of summative, mm-hmm. we're focusing mm-hmm. more on the portfolio and more on the process and quality over quantity to get us back to seeing our students as well-rounded individuals.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: That was full thoughts.
2: Yeah, full thoughts are though.
1: <laughs> Another EL episode on the books. Thanks again for listening. We have just one more reflection due for this semester. Then we are on summer vacation. Over the summer, we plan to work on our website and we'll be attending the Lilly Conference in North Carolina in August. If we are able to drop some mini episodes before then, we will. But if not, we will definitely be reflecting on the conference and all of the amazing things we are able to learn from the experience. So if you don't hear from us over break, we will definitely see you in the fall for season two of Triple I Insight into Instruction.
0: Thank you for coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education past, present, and future.